Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Deborah Rainey is the Chief Operating Officer at the Entrepreneurs' Organization with over 15 years of experience in nonprofits. She held leadership positions at Conservation International, transforming the grants and contracts function, focusing on centralizing management of U.S. programs and providing support to field programs in 30 countries. Deborah also held a leadership program at the a leadership position at the Red Cross, providing oversight and leadership to the grants management and donor strategy programs where she was responsible for the overall performance of the programs. Deborah joined EO in 2021 and since then has worked closely with the CEO in several areas of the organization to offer more than 16,000 entrepreneurs the best membership experience. Deborah, welcome to the Second Command Podcast. Thank you, Cameron. Good to be here. Yeah, really looking forward to um, to getting to know you and, and learning more about you and your role. The EO, the Entrepreneurs Organization, has been huge for me in my career. I was a member back from 95 to 2000. I met Brian, who is the CEO of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. We were in a forum together. And, and really because of that springboarded my career because that was where I became really the, the first true, true COO and, and really from there built the foundation of everything I've done. So really, really important organization for me. So I'm curious what it was for you that got you involved in EO, what got you to leave kind of the traditional nonprofit world for something that it's almost not even a nonprofit. It's like so, <laughs> so businessy, right? Yeah. And that was one of the attractions for me was that it didn't sound like any of the nonprofits that I had worked with or for. And I could immediately see that there was a lot for me to learn and grow in the organization. And I was up for the challenge. Um, after a number of years in a very traditional nonprofit setting, um, you start to kind of itch for something a little bit more challenging. And I think the draw for EO is when I thought about the size of its membership, you know, and I think about all of the people who are sitting all around the world who are budding entrepreneurs, who are already successful entrepreneurs, and what they can contribute to the world, right? I mean, that's kind mm. of a, a massive thing to think about. And I thought, well, that's, that's pretty cool. I kind of might want to get into that. It's interesting because often the, the entrepreneurial world is kind of on a different side of the line or a different side of the street often from the nonprofit world. Mm-hmm. I like that you saw the impact of the entrepreneurs. And I think we often feel it because we're writing checks and hiring people and feel, I, I always have felt this massive sense of obligation to my employees and their families. And I'm like, I have to grow this business because I got to pay them and, and they've got jobs and they like they quit their job to come and work for me and, and look at what we're doing with our customers. And it's cool that you kind of saw that is, mm-hmm. is there more of a global um, reach in this role for you, or were you involved in in other organizations that were truly global? Global, like did your scope entail that as well? This was I was already in organizations that were very global, so this wasn't um, a, a bigger global reach per se. It's a completely different audience. Um, mm. I, you know, in the the nonprofit world has evolved such that the traditional nonprofit world has evolved such that they see the importance of bringing private sector to the table to solve some of the problems they're trying to they're trying they're confronting but not really fully understanding what that might look like or could look like. So I like the way you put it, kind of the other side of it. Just that was part of what was really interesting to me. Um, but I also wanted to stay global. So um, it wasn't necessarily that this was more global or less global than what I had, had previously been doing. I just understand that 
to fully think about potential in the world, you have to think on a global scale. And I personally just want to continue to do that for myself. Yeah, it makes sense. And, and you joined kind of in the middle of COVID. Um, so I would imagine that the EO global office was a, a remote office at that time. Or were they coming into the office? Were they, yeah. Yeah, still largely remote. And it was an interesting time to join for sure. But I certainly met everybody remotely over Zoom for a long time. Yeah. And how did you get to know people that way? Like, is it, is there a series of like questions or what did you do? Like, how do you get to know? Cause it's an organization that has so much history and people that have been there for years and so much culture, deep rooted culture and values. How did you get to know everybody? Well, I had to go to member events, right? So my staff, I could talk to frequently and we could, we could build relationships over time. It's not at all the same in, in person. But I understood pretty quickly that for me to really start to understand the organization, I had to go to some events. So um, within, I think, the first two months, I went to, I went to NERV, our big, our big member event on the East Coast. And there, I, I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> there is a lot here for me to learn. Um, but that was the only, and I say to people who come to the organization uh, and are new in EO, really the only way to understand it is to get to a member event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and by member events, you mean like the big regional events, like the the Nerve and the Alchemies and the Texas Roundups, Canada Conference, all anything that. where you're going to be able to meet members. Honestly, anything. Mm-hmm. If, if you're at a smaller dinner and you have a chance to talk to members, you're immediately surrounded by a diverse set of people who all do something different for a living. Some of it you might not even understand, <laughs> and you could be at a table of eight people and have that same experience. Yeah. I remember when I first first joined EO, my forum trainer was a woman named Joan Mara. And Joan came in and, and said, the, the way that you're going to get the most out of the organization is to jump in head first and to be as vulnerable as you've ever been in your life. Because the more that you share, the more that you open up, they're going to open up with you. Was that a learning for you as well within EO? Did that, does that kind of permeate up through the organization, the, that kind of culture? Absolutely. And it uh, took me a little while to get comfortable with it. Right. <laughs> right. So the first event I went to was Nerve, the US East event, and there was a um a women of EO luncheon that I was able to go to and they had table work, right? And they had some really deep questions for the table to work on. Yeah. I was sitting next to some, next to a member who turned to me and said, you know, have you ever done something like this before in a work setting? And I was like, Nope. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> I have not, but let's hold on yeah. and let's do it. And that permeates, you know, the same thing kind of permeates the expectation for how you deal with your own teams or interact with your own teams. There's this expectation that you get to a level of connectedness that doesn't necessarily surface in other organizations I've worked with. Yeah, I, I had never gone that deep with anyone uh, unless it was like after a fifth of tequila or, you know, a couple of really <laughs> good spliffs that I got. It was either really high, but like, there was no, and then all of a sudden it just became natural. You just kind of open up. I think that's something that is really powerful in the organization. Do you carry that level of, of openness and vulnerability in your work setting with your peers, with your coworkers, with your teams as well? Is that, is that kind of part of the culture of EO? It is inside the business. Yeah. Yeah. It is. We actually, we had just recently, we were able to get, um, all of our staff together for a global staff week and had, um, had a session. Well, more like a global staff few days, but had a session um, where it was expected actually that as a staff person mm-hmm. you would tell your, tell your story and share your story in kind of a TED talk kind of a style. And um, mm-hmm. 
the very, very cool thing about that is you have people who just feel safe doing that Yeah. in a quote-unquote professional setting, right? Because it's EO. And I honestly can't imagine that happening any place else I've been. And I, it's, it's just a given. It's just a given that it's safe to be vulnerable. It was interesting. I was a guest on a podcast last year called A Little Bit Culty. And it was, to, I, I was being interviewed of when, when company culture goes too far and moves from a great culture into culty. And I said that often, I think the things that are so good about a company culture, if you, if you go 1% further, it's culty, you know, but right. this, this vulnerability is, it's kind of culty, but God, it's really good. You know, like it mm-hmm. really works and, and people really like it. So how do you socialize that with somebody who's new? Like, let's say it's a, a VP that you're bringing in from another organization that this is like radically new to them. How do you socialize this for them without scaring the heck out of them? <laughs> we lead with our values, right? So we are, EO has a great set of values, right? And one of them is trust and respect. So already you're leading with, um, if you're not comfortable sharing something with me, we have a value, trust and respect. I get to, I get to respect the boundaries you're going to set, right? And when we're onboarding somebody new, we are absolutely leading with their values. This is who EO is, right? Yes, we are a learning organization and we foster connections between our members and connecting um, across the staff is also very important. But when it's time to set a boundary, we have our trust and respect value to lean on. Um, and I I honestly, I think the, the values are not necessarily EO values, right? They resonate throughout your life. And so you don't need to be familiar with EO language. Um, necessarily to understand them. And it makes it very easy for onboarding new staff to be able to use their values. That's interesting. I like the fact that you even said that you kind of respect their boundaries as well. If you're not going to push them into it, you're, you might welcome them into that area of vulnerability and encourage it, but you're going to respect their boundaries and let it happen organically as well. You're not going to force it. No, it's not. It, and it can't be forced, right? I think that's where yeah. you start to get people begin to, the opposite happens, they start to disengage. Right. That's huge. That makes a lot of sense. Can you just briefly let us know what the entrepreneurs organization is? Because there's a bunch of listeners that I don't know how they haven't heard of it yet, but that don't know what the EO or the entrepreneurs organization is. Sure. So I, it, at its core, it's a membership association uh, for entrepreneurs. We have, um, I think our purpose tells us uh, what we're aiming to do. We want to move the world forward by unlocking the full potential of entrepreneurs and enabling the transformational growth uh, in the lives of our members. And we believe that building a community the connected community of entrepreneurs allows that to happen. Mm. I remember when I when I joined the organization, the, I think the core purpose back then was um, to build a better entrepreneur. And I, I remember just kind of feeling that and going like, but what was so interesting was so much of the work that we did wasn't necessarily about building a company. It was right. building a better human that was leading a company or building a better human that was going back into their relationships. Like, I took so much stuff out of EO and out of the forums and out of the the membership events that that had nothing to do with work. There was stuff right. around sexuality, there was stuff around relationships and around communication and um, and stuff that probably impacted my personal lives more than it, and it ever had on my business. Is that kind of a core focus of EO as well? Still, yeah, and I think that's why we talk about the transformational growth in the lives of its members. That transformational growth could translate into your personal life or into your professional life, right? But it is the growth mm. aspect of that that's important. Okay. And then, so so you come into the organization in the middle of COVID, you're meeting all of your coworkers via, um, via Zoom. So there's a little bit of the vulnerability, going to the membership events, you're meeting them all. How, how do you think, or how long did it take you to feel settled in your role? 
Well, I've been in this world just over a year and I would say it probably took the full year for sure. And even just over a year, there is still an immense amount for me to learn. Um, mm-hmm. and there are still really parts of the organization that I still like really, really need to dig into. And this role was new, right? This role was new in the organization when we created their the mm-hmm. COO role and Whenever that happens in an organization, the position evolves. So you evolve with the organization and the position evolves with the sure. organization. So settled is a little bit of a tricky question, right? So settled meaning I think I'm okay after a year, but the whole thing will continue to evolve. All right. We'll see what happens tomorrow, right? Yeah. 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 It's, I, I think that's actually the first honest answer I've heard around, around how long it takes to get settled too. People are like, Oh, like 90 days. I'm like, there's no way. There's no way you can get an organization in 90 days feel settled and, and understand the history and the people. And so what do you think it was that you did to help to get people to know you? How did you get people to, you know, understand who Deborah was and, and what makes you tick? I, I realize it sounds a little bit oversimplistic, but you just have to invest the time. So um, for my direct reports, for example, it really wasn't a matter of having half an hour conversation, traditional one-on-ones, right? We're going to set up our one-on-ones and blah, blah, blah. But um, you actually have to invest a little bit more time than that. Um, and I think being um, establishing a, communi- a type of communication with colleagues that is direct, uh, you don't have the benefit over Zoom of under- truly understanding people's body language. Um, and so committing to very direct conversations and open conversations, I think one of the only ways to establish that this is this, this is our space here. Yes, it's virtual, but this is, this is our space. And this is how, um, I'm going to respect you by being open and direct with you. And I'm going to expect the same back. And we'll, that gives us, I think, a strong foundation to build a relationship off of. Mm. And was, was EO already a kind of hybrid, you know, remote and, and office space? It was a. Yeah, we were. And that was, um, that was, you know, from a recruitment perspective prior to COVID, I think that was probably one of our great selling points. We could offer that, that, and then and COVID kind of put everybody remote, right? Mm-hmm. So did, um, are you going back to an office culture now at all or, or are you staying remote? Do they have any thoughts around that? Yeah, we, we are still remote actually. We have a, we have an office that people can come into and people do come into and they, they use it for meetings, but we are not at a point where we're mandating people to come back. Um, mm-hmm. I think the overall, it's still a pretty tricky question for most organizations. You know, employees have gotten used to being able to work remote. So if you take that benefit off the table, how many candidates in your pipeline does that take out? Right. Yeah, I think, I think, I don't know what the term is. The cat's out of the bag or the horses are out of the barn. Like it's, it's over, man. Like the whole, I, I don't, I don't see it possible. Maybe if you're a small company, but I don't see it possible to go and recruit the best people anymore. And I also don't think it's the best for people to force them to wake up in the morning and get ready and drive 35 minutes into an office and, you know, have to pack their lunch or go spend money because they can't just grab it out of the fridge and then drive home in traffic again, like all that wasted time. And then the reality is, are you really going to find the best people within a 30 minute drive to your office? Like, no, they're, yeah. they're remote, yeah. right? Or you, or you miss opportunities to have great people. So I think, I think you're yeah. approaching it the right way. Yeah. Why do you think the CEO chose you and, and why did you choose the CEO? We, we had a very long series of conversations before, uh, well, before she decided to extend an offer and before I decided to accept the job over the course of multiple months, actually. And I think um, we were able to make the final decision because I felt like I was coming in eyes wide open. 
Um, it wasn't just reading a job description and having a series of canned interviews and, and then being like, okay, well, trust your gut. <laughs> it was actually quite a lot of one-on-one time and one-on-one conversation with the CEO where to get both of us to the point where did we, did we share a vision for how the CEO and COO should work? Um, it's not, again, not just a matter of assessing qualifications and fit, but do we share a vision for what this relationship is going to look like? And, um, that process, I think, is what got us to be able to make the decision. That's, that's interesting. How did you end up deciding who did what? Or was that already clearly laid out? Was it clearly like, this is your roles, these are their roles? or? Yeah, I, I, well, I think we're still working on it, right? What 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 falls into the purview of the CEO versus COO, again, as the position evolves. We looked at, there's a really great article that HBR has second in command, right? So we actually looked at that and used that as our conversation piece. So when you look at these different types of COOs, which ones do we think are the right fit for the organization and the right fit for the CEO, right? It would have been a very different conversation if, if we had picked different COO profiles. And that was a really useful way to have that conversation. Um, we, you know, the CEO had put in a lot of thought into the things that really she didn't think should be CEO work anymore pretty specific things. And I had a chance to look at that list of specific things. So I think, um, which is a bit of a bottom-up approach. So looking broadly, these are the types of COOs and can we mirror, can the two of us get to a common understanding of the type of COO the organization needs? And then looking more granularly, like, well, okay, Deborah, here's a specific kind of task that's on my desk that I, I think a COO should do. And does that scare you or does that interest you? Very healthy conversations around that. That's amazing. I love that you mentioned the HBR article. It's the, the misunderstood role of the second in command, uh, the misunderstood yeah. role of the CEO. And it it um, came out about 15 years ago. I actually referenced it in my book that's coming out in January. I'm, I'm just launching a book called The Second in Command. And mm-hmm. It's how to unleash the power of a COO. And that article was really very formative for me when I was at COO at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I was leaving the organization trying to describe to people what I'd done. And I realized that I'd gone through a transition as well of the type of COO I'd been. You know, when I entered the organization, I was definitely the, uh, the kind of the executor and the change agent because I had literally, Brian had never built a franchise company. I had already done it twice. And then I more became kind of the partner. It was like divide and conquer. Do you know of, of the, do you remember the seven types of COOs to be able to say which one you were? Like, I can rattle uh, them off. I don't remember all of them off the top of my head, but we aligned on partner quite closely. Mm. Um, and I think that still stays relevant today. There, there was another one, and I don't remember the title of it, but it, it focused on complementary skill set. Mm-hmm. And in our conversations, we, we both agreed that the right fit would be a combination of those two, um, a partner yeah. approach with a complementary skill set. And I, I think that it's held, that approach has held, held, held true for us so far. Are one of you more, um, I also talked that it tends to be like one tends to be more outward facing, one tends to be more inward facing, or do you, is there a bit of that as well? There is a bit of that. Yeah. I mean, the CEO tends to be more outward facing. And I, as there was, um, when we were talking about it, that felt fine to me. Um, that's mm-hmm. basically what I'm used to in other organizations I've worked with where the CEO is a more outward facing, um, position. But it's interesting, it's not even always, it's probably the case, I'd say 80% of the time from my research and doing the book, I've noticed there's some CEO, CEOs who are the very inward facing, more level five, they don't want the outside world, they're often coming out of the engineering space or the technical mm-hmm. space, and they hire the COO who's kind of the outward facing business development side of them as their partner. One example would be Shopify, where Tobias mm-hmm. Luque is um, the engineering very inward, and Harley Finkelstein as COO is kind of this outward facing gregarious biz dev guy 
So it's cool. Like you are in the more traditional of those roles, but it isn't. Yeah. It's why the role is so misunderstood too, because it's like, yeah. it's so different, right? Yeah. Yeah. Why did you select working with her? Like, because you selected the organization, but you also mentioned that you really did like that relationship. Were there a couple of things that she did or demonstrated that you said, yeah, that's it? I was simply grateful that it was not a formulaic approach to bringing this position into the organization. And Mm -hmm. that said to me that the CEO is investing in a long-term vision of what this role should be for the organization. I can see, you know, you're you're CEO, you're busy, there's stuff you want to get off your desk. You just want that CEO to come in and take the stuff off your desk. And there's there's a reason why you want it to move really quickly. But the fact that she invested the time... Mm -hmm. I, you know, it was the first recruitment process I'd been through where I had that amount of time with the CEO directly, um, talking about different issues. And it's very easy to see how that approach translates into the actual work, right? Yeah. We can be thoughtful enough about that process. And that tells me that we can be thoughtful enough about other things that we might want to do for the organization together. That's interesting. All right. So one of the big differences between EO and like the normal world, um, <laughs> is you've now got these, these 16,000 members who all have opinions. Um, mm-hmm. All 16,000 of these very type A individuals tend to have opinions on how the organization should grow and be led. And they tend to have a, they have a global, a chair, someone that they've kind of elected as their, what is it? What's the chair's role versus the CEO's role? The, the board chair's role. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's also evolving to the organization. Um, as the organization thinks about its long-term future and what that will look like, getting the, the board into uh, the oversight role, embodying what that oversight role will be, is the direction that we're going in. And, and I think the board is already pretty solidly there. I think that is where you, you end up with a little bit more of the traditional CEO versus board role, right? Where the CEO is delegated to execute for the organization and the board has some level of oversight over that. Interesting. All right. So here's, here's, here's one of the things that has always driven me bonkers about, about EO. And, and it's not just EO, by the way. Um, there's a couple of other membership organizations that are kind of similar, but every single city or every chapter tends to have their own rules in some way. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we, we've set this bar only we don't, or we're closed to membership. And, and I, I don't understand how an organization works around that. How do you embrace that and work around that? Or does it drive you bonkers too? <laughs> it doesn't it's, drive hard, <laughs> it's hard to have the standardization, right? Like it's hard to say, I, I don't know. I don't, so go ahead. No, it doesn't drive me bonkers because it is part of the challenge I'm attracted to. Um, oh. There is the trick. And if I figure out the trick, then I myself will go on and build a very successful business. But <laughs> <laughs> the trick is how do you get flexibility within a framework, right? And it's, it's actually, this is no different at EO than it was in any of the global organizations that I've worked with in the past, right? Um, you're, you're balancing centralization and decentralization. You're balancing the need to standardize specific processes and policies so that you can scale. And there is a, an amount of diversity that you want to retain because it's what gives the organization its lifeblood, right? Um, you don't want to lose local flavor. You don't want to lose um, ideas that incubate locally. Um, you want to preserve all of that and yet achieve some level of consistency to make your organization a little bit more, a little bit less complex. That is the challenge for the organization. And there, there is not a single answer. I could not on today's conversation be like, and this is how you do it. 
it looks different organization to organization. And I think it is, uh, there's going to be some trial and error for us. Holy fuck though. You just kind of nailed it with, with the whole thing of what you just said is amazing. What you nailed with me was also the flexibility within a framework. Yeah. It just, it just totally actually makes sense. And you need to embrace that, right? Because it is, as you said, the lifeblood. If you, if we're, if we're so rigid and everyone has to do it one way, it kind of shuts down that energy and shuts down that lifeblood as well. Yeah. Yeah. It will be whatever that space is where we, where we hit a balance there. It's going to evolve over time, right? Because as the creative energy, um, itself evolves and challenges the standards and the standards have to be, have to also become flexible. Um, the whole balance of it will continue to evolve. I think it is um, articulating. First step is articulating that you want to achieve some sort of a balance there and setting the expectation mm. that we're looking for some sort of a balance there. How did you learn your the organization coming in? I, I think you said it was a lot of the, the communication, a lot of time with people, but how did you get to learn about the rest of the organization? Were there any tricks there as well or any questions you asked or? Um, I don't think there's anything different than what I've said so far. Um, attending, attending different events was, was key. Um, you know, I, I had the first year, my first series of board meetings helped me understand how the governance of the organization, um, understand how the governance of the organization impacts the operation of the organization. I had to go through those, you know, a series of several quarterly, um, board meetings before some of the pieces of the puzzle came together for me. Mm. It just it takes the time it takes. Do you do you resist the urge to make decisions in the first little bit? You know, there's like that popular book, the first ninety days, that that you're not supposed to make decisions. You're supposed to observe and ask questions. Did you follow any of that kind of framework at all, or or did you come in and week two you're like slash people and do this? Like, yeah, absolutely not. No, very much an observation mode in the beginning, and I think it wasn't as if anything was severely broken or on fire, right? Right. But the organization was like everybody else, um, pulling itself out of COVID in the middle of the great resignation, um, figuring out how all of those pieces were going to impact the organization. And so um, in that little bit of a delicate space, um, observing was actually quite important at that point. What do you do when you're observing and you notice them? Do you just write down the ideas or... (laughs) Uh, well, first, it's a matter of just deciding, do I have to squash this now or can it, can it wait? Right. Mm. And especially early on when you're building relationships, I think most of it can wait until you're able to connect with somebody one on one, unless it's, it's something that's about to catch fire. Um, and then it's weighing, you know, do I have to actually swoop in and fix this or can I let that person ride it out and learn on their own? And it just depends on how, how risky the particular issue is. I'm doing some work with, I've always had coaches in my life, whether it's a relationship coach or a sex coach or a business coach. And so I'm working with a relationship coach, communication coach, and she's working with me on that just in my, my personal relationships, like not trying to fix everything right away and just letting it sometimes sort itself out. And yeah, um, it's hard, sometimes it's hard to do, but it's, it's always the right thing to do, I think as well. What about your growth as a, as a leader? Where do you think you've really grown? over the years and where are you working on currently? Well, not unlike other parts of your life, you, you grow by messing up a lot. <laughs> you grow through doing some hard things. Early on for I'm thinking early on in my my journey as a supervisor, for example, I made a lot of mistakes early on. I think mean, most of us do, right? Um, that made me a better uh, team leader. But it also made me it required me to sit and reflect 
on the fact that I messed up and I had to do things differently. Um, so I think instituting that practice of, of forcing yourself to reflect and not just move past those moments because they were uncomfortable uh, is actually mm. really important. I think it makes you better um, over time. Um, where I'm, I would say working on, I, I have, um, an, I have a tendency to want all of the information all at once, um, to be able to see the picture. And sometimes you can't mm. see the full picture. And especially in a, um, in a remote world and in an organization as complex as EO, um, you have to be a little bit uncomfortable in discomfort, I think, sometimes. And that's something I'm trying to work on. Interesting. You're pretty aware as a leader too that you're you're thinking of of this stuff at a different level. Is are, are, are do you learn from from books, from coaches, from courses and stuff as well, or is a lot of it? It seems that you are very high in introspection and the reflection. Is that where most of your learning comes from as well? Yeah, I think most of it is is so far has been through introspection. I've just started to work with a coach who is helping me see some other spots that I might not have uh, acknowledged before that need some work. Mm. I love, one of the things I loved about EO was just the exposure to all of these different thought leaders too, and just being able to sit at the side. And I'll tell you, if you if you get a chance to attend the EMP program, mm-hmm. highly highly encourage you to drop into Endicott House and hang out there for three and a half days. It's 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 a really special, very very small part of EO, but it has made massive massive uh, difference in the organizations of thousands of, of entrepreneurs over the last twenty odd years. It's a really cool program. So the people that report to you now, what's your kind of day-to-day focus with them? And, and are you working on growing them? And, and what areas are you trying to grow them? If yes. Sure. So I have um, a few different teams that are reporting to me now, and they each take a different level of focus. Um, for the first, honestly, for most of the first year, um, I spent a lot of time and attention on our people and culture team um, mm-hmm. and getting that that team needed a little bit of stability, um, needed to change some of its practices and processes and some of, um, some of the work it had been doing over time needed to evolve into a more modern space. Um, some of its recruitment practices needed to change as, as the labor market around us had, was changing. So it's been a good amount of time that first year with the people and culture team. Appropriately so, I think that organization is about its people. I think working with teams, it's, I'm lucky that I have a lot of diversity of thought in the teams that report to me. Um, and so it just kind of depends which ones I have to spend more time with than others. Some are, are, um, are quite good on their own and you can just let them run. Some of them need a little bit more of investment and I just have to be aware of that. So, so adopting with the situational leadership, you talked about the people and culture team and some of the changes there. Can you give us a couple of or, or one even specific thing that you had to work on? Uh, our recruitment practice. Um, the with the changing labor market, you can't the traditional recruitment approach um, doesn't get you the candidates you need as quickly as you need them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had to just think about being more um, less transactional uh, and more personal in our approach. Do you use recruiting agencies at all, or is the network big enough within EO that you can just leverage the network as well? We do on occasion, depending on uh, you know, particularly for highly specialized roles. Yeah, it's interesting. The whole recruiting market right now, the labor market is completely changing. It's, have you noticed anything around pay? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we are, most organizations that I have spoken to are all dealing with the same, the same compensation challenges. What are you doing there? Or what are you seeing 
around compensation. I mean, and just to timestamp this, it's um, we're doing this recording in November of 2022, and it feels like we're kind of at the we've had three or four or five months of interest rates being raised, and, and inflation is absolutely here. What are you guys dealing with, and, and what kind of changes are you seeing specifically? So some of the changes you end up when when compensation when when compensation is increasing across the market, you end up with salary compression in the organization. So, you know, the person who might report directly to me is actually quite close to me in salary. Mm. So you end up with salary compression, you end up with equity issues. You have to basically reevaluate your whole compensation practice to make sure that as as wages are rising, you're continuing to pay in an equitable way, you're continuing to pay um, competitively in the market, and you're continuing to bring everybody along at the same pace. Um, and I think most most organizations have had to completely relook at their overall compensation approach, as as have we. Yeah, it seems to be a really confusing area for people right now. I mean, I I tend to to say, well, you, you know, you have to raise rates or raise what you're paying, and then I'm like, well, where the fuck does that money come from? Like, how, how do you charge more? It's like it seems to be like this this almost kind of phonetic pace to keep to keep pace or kind of amount of change to keep pace. I'm not sure that's really the right direction. When is the the resting point, right? When does it start to settle down, and and we realize, well, now we're in this, you know, quote unquote, new normal. Is is that on the horizon? Mm-hmm. Um, how long can you do this this um this push pull with the market? All right, I want to go back to the 21, 22 year old Deborah Rainey. You're going to give yourself some advice. You're just starting off in your career. What advice would you give the 21 or 22 year old Deborah that you know to be true today? That it's okay to not take a linear career path. 21, 22 year old Deborah had a, you know, you have to go this direction and this is what the world expects of you and, and that's what you do. And I think very few people I know now in my life ended up with a linear path. And I think telling 21, 22 year old Deborah that, um, that the path is not, uh, predetermined is what I would say. I'm going to pass that on to my 21 year old son. We were speaking about it last night at dinner and I, I don't think I was able to articulate that it's easier to draw the path backwards than it is to draw it forwards. Oh, it's yeah. <laughs> Well said, yeah. 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 Deborah Rainey, Chief Operating Officer from the Entrepreneurs Organization. Thanks very much for sharing with us on the Second Command Podcast. Thank you, Cameron. Wonderful to be here. Very appreciative. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.